So if you go into a market that is oversaturated, then you're going to see something like nine square feet of lockers per capita or 11. Or if you look at a market that is under, then it would be around two. Welcome to The Buy Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on Scott Crone, real estate investor. We talk a lot about self-storage, green investing, all that good stuff. But before we get to today's guest, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Hey, uh, Cody. Well, this weekend was a little bit of uh, destruction and building, I guess. Destroyed my body on Saturday by doing a seven-mile Spartan race, which if you haven't seen the Spartan races, it's the ones with the big obstacles and a lot of up and downhill out in the Texas Hill Country, and I just wasn't really ready for it. I hadn't been running as much as I should have. I finally starting to feel back to my normal self a few days later. Then I also finished my uh, the construction on this big kind of tabletop cabinet thing I was building for my patio that I can use to be like a pizza prep station. I keep my paddle boards inside it, and then I also watch some UFC fights. So if you keep up with UFC, I had a new champ at the 155 weight class for the first time in a long time after Khabib retired. So that was cool. How about you, Cody? Yeah, sounds like you had an eventful weekend. I had a pretty eventful weekend as well. It's been getting actually really nice up here in Massachusetts. Like today is 83 or 84 degrees. And over the weekend, it was in the high 70s. So let's see, Friday, I was kind of just hopping around. We went to some outdoor bars, which is super cool. And it was nice that we could actually do that without being freezing with jackets on. I went down to visit my buddy Preston, who is in Norwalk, Connecticut, which is like 30 minutes outside of New York City, but a lot less city-like and a lot better vibe, in my opinion, anyway. And then on Sunday was my first lake day of the season. I know I've been kind of giving updates on the lake house. We've been putting in ceilings, sheetrock ceilings in the bedrooms, doing some construction work, getting that all ready for the next lake season. And so had some friends over on Sunday, got to enjoy the sun, got to hang out, have some White Claws and Trulies and what have you. And that's pretty much it. And now it's still nice weather, so can't complain. Back to the regular week. And before we get any further, Justin, let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards, they're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. So today's show, we have Scott Crone. Uh, this was a really interesting episode because we've obviously done a lot of real estate stuff, but this was just this whole different angle where you're talking about these storage units. And I've read a lot of things where storage units actually have a lot of bang for your buck as far as from the owner perspective. And then you also don't have all the intricacies as far as having to deal with 
eviction laws in certain states because certain states are, are really locked down. The other cool part about his story, which is something I've never heard of, is he's going to college. He's trying to learn to be an architect, and he's just in a normal class, and the professor pseudo-hires him and some of his classmates to do actual projects, not like fictional projects, but they're doing real work for him, but they're not paying him. He ends up getting a paid position, but it just feels like a weird, under-the-table way that this professor was sourcing employees from his college class. What do you think, Cody? Yeah, the other cool part that I really liked about Scott's story, and this is why we brought him on, obviously we've had a ton of real estate guests, is one, the self-storage thing, which he had a ton of knowledge on, just you know all of the ratios and how much you'd be paying per square foot, what you should be looking for in terms of location, but also like green home investing. And even if you're not an, a real estate investor, making your house more green, having like these cost-saving synergies, it doesn't have to be like a downgrade in quality of life or anything, like Things that can actually improve the quality of your home, the quality of your air, like the quality of your power. So many different little tidbits that you can actually go and implement into your everyday life. So I thought this episode was jam-packed. And if you thought the same and want to go check out the show notes and have a little written description, check out more about Scott, hit on some of those links. You can do everything at thefyshow.com slash Scott Crone. That's K-R-O-N-E, thefyshow.com slash Scott Crone. So, I mean, I, I was really began with my interest in architecture and I began pursuing that in high school. And I, I took a couple, um, first it was tech drawings and then it was architectural drawing in high school. I was fortunate enough to go to a large high school. We had about 4,000 students where we could take those sort of classes. You know, I, I considered going into architecture in, when, you know, when I was pursuing college, but I was also looking to play college collegiate soccer. And so, you know, my concern was if I go to a tech school and I don't like it and then I'm going to be stuck at this really boring school. So I didn't want to do that. So I, I chose to go to the liberal arts because I figured it would give me a greater variety in life. And I also thought I could, you know, I, I was able to play soccer there and as well as college football. So that was my my first interest to it. But I thought I closed that door when I was in college and it wasn't until my senior year that I found out that they actually had master's programs for people who did not pursue a bachelor's in architecture. And so that's how I got back into it. And I know sometimes it's tough, especially when you're in college, to really know what you want to specialize in. But at that time, like, was your interest from architecture rooted in things like community development? Was it like, hey, I would love to design a, a beautiful high rise? Was it kind of more in like normal consumer homes? Like, did you have a thought of where you wanted to go with it? I wish I could say it was that refined, but like you said, I mean, in college, I, I was all over the board. And then we also had a family business at the time. And so ultimately, I thought it'd be going into the family business. So I, I didn't give it as much forethought as I probably should have, you know, and I think, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? I did have friends whose parents, whose father was an architect. And in fact, he was he's one of the world-renowned architects of this time. His name's Adrian Smith. And so I, I grew up with, you know, his daughter as one of my friends. And so I was around them quite frequently and, and saw and appreciated what architects did, whether it was on the residential level or more on the commercial level. But I never really gave it as much thought as to if, if which one I was going to pursue. So I know a few architects and many of them have not ventured onto the buy side of real estate. They don't own properties. They just love the design aspect. They love building these structures. When did that switch kind of flip for you when you decided, hey, I kind of want to get on the other side of the equation here. So when I first got into the program, I had a month off between college and when the graduate program started. And, you know, the, the first beta test to get into the program was 
you know, we had to go to summer school and that was from, you know, 9am to five. And we were in the crown hall, which is Mies van der Rohe's crown jewel of architecture at IIT. And it's this gorgeous glass and steel building. And, it, but in the summer, it was like, if it was a hundred degrees outside, it was like 150 degrees inside. And so, you know, we're drawing and sweating and we're wearing headbands and wristbands and we're not dripping on our drawings and all that sort of stuff. And we were all sitting around talking and we were talking about how the stereotype is that architects are poor and the real people that make money are the developers. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> that's where I got to get figured things out. You know, why is it that all these architects are always, you know, the broke guys and why are the developers the, the affluent guys? So my first studio class was with a, a gentleman, a professor who owned a, a real estate development company as well as an architectural and contracting, and he facilitated his own projects. And I became his TA. And I'm like, I got to understand the business side of this thing. If I can do the business side as well as the architecture side, then that's that's the home run. And so that's how I got into it. It's obviously awesome to have somebody like that that's got some experience who you could learn from. But at what point did you actually get to get your hands a little dirty, like to get involved with a purchase? And I guess what was that like mentally? Because I know for most people, you know, when you're starting to talk about buying real estate, it feels like a large number and it can just be a little intimidating. It was the first day of that class. He showed, you know, so I was his TA. You know, I showed up at his work at seven o'clock in the morning and, you know, class started at two. And he said, hey, this is what we're going to be working on this semester is we're going to be working on this 50 acre site that we're looking to acquire it was the old, the former Sarah Lee factory. And uh, we're going to turn that into a thousand condominiums. And so I, I want you to put together this information that we can give all the students so that they can go begin working on this. And I'm like, holy cow, like, where do you start on a 50 acre site and you know, a thousand condominiums? And so literally we get to class, he signs it and he says, okay, here's, here's the site, here's the survey, here's the requirement. I want a thousand condominiums. I want parking. I want lakes. I want roads. Come back on Wednesday with your plan. Go away. You know, for four hours I worked on in class and then I drove home, had dinner. And then, you know, I worked until midnight. And then the next morning I got up at his office at seven o'clock and started the routine again. And, uh, you know, I did that for three years working for him, but that was the first, you know, it was really ground up right from the beginning, day one. And I was fortunate that they took my plan and began implementing it in the office, got modified and got eventually whittled down to about 316 condominiums, 64 townhomes and 16 single family homes. And it was a hundred million dollar project. And so um, I worked there for six years and they were still completing it when I left. And I was also running two other jobs at that point in time. I was jumping right into the deep end, if you will. So I just want to pause you there for a second. You're doing two other jobs at the same time. It sounds like you're already undertaking this massive project. I mean, I couldn't even begin to wrap my head around planning something like that, building the survey, you know, doing some of the architecture drawings. What were those other two things you were doing at the time? Well, keep in mind that once, you know, so I was the only kid, you know, I, I was a kid at that point in time. I was 21 years old. So I was the only person in the office who did not have a, an undergraduate in, in architecture. So that meant I could read and write. And they put me on the development side of things. So I was doing all the financial performa while I was literally took, they took my concept and then my uh, classmates who were also employees of the company and the other employees were, were refining it and developing it, working on through all the different levels of drawings that are necessary. So I was not on the boards, but when I would go back to my home, I would be working on my concept and refining it as well. And so it was a combination of me refining it, they working on it and them working on other stuff. They were finishing up other projects. Once we got it under permit and under approval, and I put together the whole financial performance of this thing, and that was progressing, 
Then at that point in time, they had me start running a 40-unit development with $25 million. And so then I began the whole PUD process, which is the planned urban development, where you know you come up with a concept, you're going to the village, you're talking with them. You know, I went to, I think it was 36 different meetings to get the project approved over the course of nine months. And so then once we got that one going, working on that, getting all the contracts, working with all the buyers, then they started having me work on a 51-unit development. Just before we get too far away from this point in time where like you're in class, you're in college, I guess I'm just a little confused about this model. I've never heard of this where you and your classmates are also employees of this commercial project, but yet you're in class. Like, is the teacher kind of getting a little bit of free labor here? Like, how does that work with like, I know with some teachers who do research, if they're doing it, you know, while they're at the college, like the college gets a cut, like just how does that partnership work? That was a source of tension within the faculty. But yes, um, so my first real estate negotiations were this. He said, well, since you're my TA, that means you have to work for me for free. And so in the office, and I said, well, my TA ship is only for 20 hours. So if I work more than 20 hours or during the summer, I'm not your TA. I'm, I'm just an employee. Then you have to pay me. And he reluctantly agreed upon that. So the other students, when they were working in the office, actually did get paid by him. And But obviously, it was a grossly less labor than a regular employee full-time employee. And so that was a source of tension within some of the other faculty. But I viewed it as a great thing because here I'm getting this firsthand application in real life on how to do this stuff. And so for me, I it was like invaluable. you know. And the real kicker was as soon as I graduated, we were in the final stages of getting this project you know, through final submissions and um, ready for permit. And he said, well, we have to implement for the next eight weeks, 80-hour weeks. And so, you know, I just negotiated my salary and then my hourly rate went down to like $1.25. <laughs> and the, the students who were still part-time, they were making like triple overtime. And so I was like, man, I'm, I'm getting hammered here. You know, I was trying to get married and all this. And so, but we literally had people falling asleep on the toilet. They were like, hey, Mark's been in the bathroom for a really long time. Maybe we should go wake him up. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was tough. Those, eight, those two months at 80 hours a week, that was some tough work. But nevertheless, I think you did mention earlier that you worked there for six years, if I'm not mistaken, right? You're right. That's correct. So I guess, you know, what led to you moving on to the next thing? And what was that next thing? What were those next steps? Well, I, what led to me was uh, negotiations over my next, you know, salary rate. And, you know, I, I didn't feel I was being compensated for what the, the workload that I was doing. And so the former CEO of the company went and started a, a development company with two brothers, and they, they asked me to come join them on a 90-unit on townhome division to run that. And so um, that's what led me to move on. And then at what point do you kind of start transitioning from just assisting other people build their plans to you starting to kind of bring on your own projects that are, that are really yours? So when I got to that company, they so that each person had a distinct role. So the CEO under you know, did was working with the banks. One brother was marketing and the other brother was construction. And what they didn't have is a cohesive plan as to what the true performer was. When I say that is, okay, what is the gross revenues? What is the sales revenue? What is the unit configuration? What is the cost of this going to be? And, and how does this thing really financially model out? And with the townhomes, they had five different models. And so, you know, it wasn't as straightforward thing as like, okay, we have 90 condominiums. We know exactly the sizes. So we had to make some assumptions as to what the configuration of these units were. And then I began modeling out the whole performa in terms of like, what is the gross potential revenue? What is the cost for each unit going to be? What is our labor? You know, how much is it going to cost us to build one unit? And then multiplying that across the board. 
And when I got there, they were expecting to make $3 million. And when I got done with the modeling, you know, and I, I looked at it, I was like, and I bet, you know, obviously your listeners can't see the reaction on my face, but it was like my eyeballs were doing the, you know, the Bugs Bunny popping <laughs> out of my sockets. And I went back and double checked everything and triple checked everything and waited a night, double checked it again the next morning. And then I presented it and I was like, hey guys, this thing's going to lose a half a million dollars. And literally computers got ripped off my desk. The printers got, you know, taken off. They put in their own offices. The doors were locked. And they had this huge fight for the next week. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And so it became clear that they couldn't really afford me. And so I said to them, you know what? I have an idea. You guys need me, but you can't afford me. So why don't I go part-time, work half-time for you, and I'm going to start my own company and I will begin working on uh, spec homes. I will buy a, a property, tear it down and build a new one. I'm going to do it like five blocks from here. And so I'll be able to work here in the morning. In the afternoon, I can go do my stuff so I can, you know, cut your expenses, but also not leave you hanging. And they agreed to do that. And that's how I started Coda. Was there one big thing that that group of three people were overlooking that led to that three and a half million dollar discrepancy? Well, it was lack of communication. You know, they, they, they each had their own filing system. They each had their own assumptions and they weren't talking back and forth and they, they weren't working as a team. And so, you know, some of the things I, I came up with is I'm like, one, we have to have a central filing system. We have to have a server. We have to have, you know, everybody being able to access the same files as opposed to one person having his files in his desk and then the other person having the files in theirs. And there wasn't any collaboration or, or you know, continuity within the company. And so I brought that structure to them and, you know, that's what was the impetus and how I came up with this problem was because I'm like, well, if I'm going to get the construction costs, I got to talk to the construction guy, you know, not just assume that the financial guy knows these things. And so that's where we went through all the numbers. So when you first started finding these properties, I know you mentioned you would find properties, tear them down, rebuild them. Were these just single families? Were these apartment buildings, condos? The first project we did was a single family home. We bought a property for around $300,000. We tore it down. We built a new one for three fifty, dollars and we sold it for $1,050,000. Wow. And then we did um, a couple other homes. And after that first one, my investors did really well on it. And they said two things to me. They said, do it again and don't tell anybody. And that was a, when I realized I better start telling everybody <laughs> if they didn't want me, you know, sharing the good and the wealth with others, you know. So we did... Uh, three other homes. And then we, uh, we bought a, an old nursery and we tore it down and then uh, built townhomes there. And then we got into uh, working with churches and also mixed use condominiums, retail, flex space and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I was just about to mention, cause I, I was looking at Coda Management Group, the company you mentioned that you founded back in 2012, kind of when this all culminated and you guys are investing in everything, single, multi, retail, commercial, self-storage, and like you just said, the multi-flex, uh, like athletic spaces, and sounds like a nursery as well. I really wanted to dive into self-storage a little bit, though, because we have had many a real estate people on who have reached amazing amounts of wealth, hit financial independence super early, but we have not had anyone who kind of focused on self-storage units. And I'd love to kind of hear how you got interested in those. Was there a mentor who told you? Scott, you got to get into self-storage units. Like these things are the big money makers. And then could you just tell us a little bit about the business model? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory. They have everything. 
Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. Well, I really grew up as a young lad. You talked about going back to my dark days of my youth. And, you know, I always dreamt about owning boxes of corrugated metal. And, you know, that was my vision as a kid, right? <laughs> Architect's um, dream. Those beautiful, exactly. those beautiful sliding garage doors <laughs> on every corner. Yeah, Exactly. Like, that's that was my aspiration. It was funny because we have this new intern who became a part-time employee from the University of Wisconsin Real Estate School of Business. And, uh, he, he mentioned on his first day of class that he's working for Coda. And then I get this email from this woman in his class saying, I've always had this passion for self-storage. You know, I'd like to talk to you more about it. And I called her up. I'm like, when did this passion really begin? <laughs> <laughs> so how did we get into it? So if you recall in 08, 09, we had this thing called the financial crash. And, you know, obviously everything in single family and multifamily just completely dried up. And so... Everyone was going into, when I say multifamily, it was new construction, right? You, could, you couldn't do condos anymore. It was, everyone was looking at apartments. And so everyone flooded into the apartment, and it's still flooded into that direction today. And I, and I think it's way overextended. It's been an incredible run for almost 20 years now. But I had a client who went to a self-storage academy, and he came up to me, and he's like, I want you to help me find a distressed self-storage. And for like a year and a half, two years, we were evaluating tons and tons of deals and we could never find one. I'm like, this is this is not the definition of distress. It's like, it's 100% occupied, but 30% vacancy in, in terms of economic. That's not distress, it's just underperforming. So I, I, you know, I kept saying to him, like, if you really wanna make money in, in real estate, is, then you have to develop, you have to expand the, the performa, you have to expand the, the ability of the project to make more money. And we had a client that needed about 50,000 square feet of warehouse space. And we found this building that had 90,000 square feet. And we went and met with the mayor and um, we reviewed the concept that our, our client wanted. And she gave us the nonverbal approval. She was nodding her head yes, but never said yes. And we left the meeting and the city planner said, isn't it great that the mayor backed that? And I said, well, yeah, she gave us the, the nod, but she, I noticed she never really said yes. And he goes, oh, no, no, she's, she's totally on board. And so we went hard under the contract. And then two months later, she, we got a call from her saying that she couldn't go forward with the project. And I said, well, I appreciate you telling me now because we would have spent a lot of money going through this process if you're not going to back it. But if we find another use, would you support it? She goes, I will definitely support it. So, you know, I'm like, what do we do with this 90,000 square foot building? So I called up my, my tenant. I said, hey, we got this empty warehouse. You know, if you want to bring in your financial advisors on self-storage, and see if it works, then you know maybe we can um, convert it or sell it to you. So they came through and they did all the modeling of it, and they you know they came to the conclusion that it was the perfect candidate. And so they said the only problem is we don't have anyone to do the entitlements of, or build it. And I said, well, I can do that. And so that's what we did. And we ended up building it all out. We kept a portion of it, but then we ultimately ended flipping the whole thing to Compass Self Storage when it was done. 
So that was my foray into self-storage. And what I realized and I learned during that process is how much more predictable and there's a model behind it compared to multifamily. You know, multifamily, you, you know, you lick your finger, you hold up your finger in the wind and you're like, where's the supply and demand and how much is there really out there? But in self-storage, it's a very, it's a model that is very predictable. You can be very specific in terms of what location and what are the supply indices and demand and making sure that it works. And so that's what really attracted to me to it. And the fact that when I began studying it, it performs the best in, in recessionary markets than any other asset class in, in real estate. In fact, it's I deemed it recessionary resistant. You know, a lot of people say recessionary proof. I don't think there's anything that's proof, but it certainly resists recessions the best. You alluded to this model, and I know we're looking up some some articles about you in preparation for this interview. I saw one where it's kind of talking about that model. It's talking about, you know, how many people are in this kind of radius and the, the amount of cars that are coming by. Could you just talk through a little bit of the things that go into this model? Yeah. So the if you look at a traditional supply and demand indices, where the two intersect is, you know, obviously the ape, you know, where you're maximizing your rents and, you know, your your vacancies and is the minimal but you're getting the, the best dollar amounts for your product as well. And for most of America, that's seven square feet of lockers per capita. So, you know, for, and only 10% of the population actually uses self-storage. So if you go into a market that is oversaturated, then you're going to see something like nine square feet of lockers per capita or 11. Or if you look at a market that's under, then it would be around two. So if generally speaking, if we're going to stereotype, because that's what America is about right now is all these stereotypes, Right. The East Coast, Florida, Texas, the West Coast are oversaturated. So if you go to any market in those, you'll probably see the indices well over seven. The Florida average has risen to nine. It's not uncommon to accept nine as a, as a basis for you know where saturation is comes into play. And we're seeing actually things being built in markets that have 11 square feet per capita and they're building new stuff. It's just amazing how much they're really building in Florida. To me, that's one sign of a market crash or a market correction. So that's why we're avoiding those areas. But generally speaking, we're, we're trying to focus on areas that are under seven. So when we bought in Chicago, Milwaukee, Dayton, Cincinnati, uh, Louisville, where we're also working on one in Ohio, they're well under five. We've not bought anything, any building that is above five. In fact, you know, we've been under four. So that's that's one of the things that we look for is what is the market. And so we can go in there and know that if we build this, there'll be people that demand the product and we'll be able to get it leased up and sell it and be, you know, have a successful project. And to dive into the numbers a bit, I know it's going to vary, obviously, from state to state. Obviously, like the Midwest is going to cost less for self-storage than, say, a California might. But in terms of like the cost per unit on the build and then or or on the purchase and then the average revenue per unit, are there some key indicators that you should be looking out for that people should be looking out for that are interested in getting into the space? Yeah, I mean, the national average for rental per square foot is $18 a square foot. And so we hire feasibility consultants to to go over the data to verify it third party and to make sure that we're, we're coming in. So if we're below $18, then obviously our cost structure has got to be compensated enough. So ultimately that comes down to the land. We pay less in order to make sure that we keep our margins. So when we're when we're building and converting these things, we're looking to be at 60% of what the competition is. And so when we were buying those buildings, we were buying buildings that weren't self-storage for around $11, $12 a square foot. So that is like well below replacement costs. I can't build the buildings that we bought for that amount of money. In fact, it creates an 
an issue with our insurance companies because, you know, like what's the replacement cost? Well, I bought it for $11 a square foot, which is great for my insurance rate, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily cover, you know, if I had to rebuild the building. So if a new building would cost like $10 million, we're looking to be in an around, you know, $7 million, $6.5 million. That's, that's the competitive advantage that we're coming in on a conversion. To answer your question on an existing facility or an expansion, then we're looking at what the NOI is and the cap rate and the inefficiencies to see if there's market efficiencies that we can take advantage of or if there's opportunities to expand it. So that pricing will vary dramatically different because of the fact that you're buying an asset that's already done versus one that needs to be built out and things along those lines. Does that make sense? Yeah. The reason I was asking, and obviously it probably varies on building, it sounds like your strategy is to buy a large industrial building that might be not being used or you know they don't, they don't have a way to purpose it. And then you're going in there and just building out, you're kind of fitting it for storage units. Where I am, I'm up in Massachusetts. A lot of them are like, you know, there'll be like six or seven buildings with, you know, say 50 storage units per building. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I just kind of want to get an idea of what it costs like per unit to manufacture these things. Yeah, that that is, that really depends on, um, well, in our conversion model. So we're doing three models right now. We're, we're building new, we are converting, and then we're expanding. And so in each of these models, if we're buying an existing building that is not self-storage, then it really depends on how many of the existing amenities in the building need to be replaced. So if we look at Dayton, we bought that building and had been vacant for 40 years. There was no power. There was no gas. The roof was horrible. It was leaking. It was the original roof, and half the windows were blown out or broken. And it was just a concrete shell. So literally, we had to come in there and build everything. You know, we, we basically put a new roof on it. We put all new mechanicals, all new electrical, all new fire suppression, elevators, everything. And so our cost for that one was a lot more than we're, we're doing in Ohio because in Ohio, the, the project that we're doing is going to be a class B facility all on one level. And it's going to be a drive up facility that will be climate controlled. So on that one, you know, we're, we're building things, you know, between let's just say 35 to $55 a square foot on our class A facilities. We're trying to be around 60 or $70 a square foot. And the new ones are around a hundred dollars a square foot. So that's that's sort of a little bit different. And then what we're doing in our other project where we're expanding, we're actually buying modular pods of self-storage facilities that we just literally come and, and drop them on the site and they're already done. And right now you're talking about this one particular facility that's in Dayton. I know you have Wright-Pat Air Force Base there, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base there. And you know I have a background in the military. I know that's a very transient community. When you're thinking about locations, do you factor that in? Or are you just looking at the number of people? Or you try to think, hey, this is a place where there's going to be a lot of people moving in and out, which always drives more storage. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's major reasons why people do it. It's you know death, divorce, displacement, or being dislocated. Displacement is being more of like you're under foreclosure or you're, you know, something that you're being kicked out of your apartment, whatever it may be. And, you know, obviously being dislocated, you know, by the military, you're being moved out. So you have to put stuff into self-storage for nine months while you're on deployment. What really attracted us to the date market is they were, they were building a, a thousand rental units within a quarter mile of that building. I mean, the, the development there was just phenomenal. And so we saw all this new demand coming into the marketplace. And that's the reason why we went there. I do want to pivot because there's another facet of real estate that we haven't uh, we haven't dove into yet that 
I know you authored a book, actually, High Performance Homes, talking about like green energy, having a greener home. And this is something that I'm sure many of our listeners can take away and start implementing things like tomorrow. They might not be able to, you know, refit a 90,000 square foot industrial building into a bunch of self-storage units, but they might be able to do things that can make their home a little more green. So could you kind of just talk about how you got into that space? And then maybe we'll, Justin and I will ask you some more tactical stuff about it. Well, when we started back in 1998 with Coda Design Build, we began implementing green design concepts, but a lot of the green technology out there was just too expensive that it just didn't make economic sense to put it in because the payoff was just so ridiculously long. You know, gas was cheap, electricity was cheap. And so, you know, if you're buying this high performance furnace, it would never pay for itself. But we would, we would do green things within it in terms of solar orientation, lighting, all those sorts of things in order to make the home more energy performance and, and conscientious. And so we, we, we would call that our eco-build system. And then when we were talking about with these concepts with people, they had no idea what we were doing. And so one of the things I did is the house that I'm in, that I currently live in, we, I decided to go super hardcore energy efficient on it and, and make it a really green house. And so LEED did not have standards for that for residential. They only had commercial at that point in time. And so when Lee did come out with it, the first thing it says, you have to begin the process when you're on the design board, you can't start it in midway through construction. So I was already, I was already under construction. And so, you know, it was impossible for me to get this house lead certified, but I went back and said, okay, let's look at the point system. Where would this house come in? And it would, it, it would come in as a silver. And the only difference between silver and gold was I couldn't get enough points because in the commercial world with LEED is if you get the gold certification when you overlap different systems and you get bonus points, if you will. And so I actually won the um, Green Good Design Award and there was it's an international award and only two homes in the United States won that award that year. Mine was one of them. And then my professor's was, he did a house in, in Arizona and his was the other one. So the, the two of us were the only ones that actually won this award that year. So I used the house as a laboratory to help educate people on green. And then when we decided to write the book, because people say, well, like, I love green, but I don't want to have solar panels. You know, that was the, the, that was the common reaction. You know, I'm, I, I want to be green, but I'm not, I'm not really that green. And we're like, okay, well, you can be green. There, it's like the tax code. There, there's different shades of gray. You know, in being green, there's different shades of green. You can be super high intensive green, or you can just do green things that don't really cost more that can um, reward you, you know, big time in terms of the quality of your, your home. We've had clients that didn't want to do green. We showed them how they could implement green and how their home could be that much better off by implementing the techniques that we, you know, showed them how to do. And, and they were ended up being very pleased. And then we had other people that came to us and said, I, I just bought a Tesla. I want you to design the entire house around having enough solar orientation to, to charge my Tesla. And that was like, literally the house was designed around this car. So we had the whole spectrum. And um, that's where we came up with the book to show people like how you can do little things to implement green. So today it's actually even easier than when we wrote the book because they have like the new light bulbs that are, you don't even have to buy new light fixtures. If you have a recessed can and you want to put a, an LED light in there, you can literally retroactively fit them back in. You know, some of the people are our neighbors that said, hey, you know, I think I need a new air conditioner for my house because my attic where we have a, an extra bedroom is always super hot. You know, what do we do there? I'm like, well, first of all, I pull out all your bat insulation and go in and foam it. You'll cut down your, your energy consumption dramatically. And they, they couldn't believe how much they saved, 
but how much more comfortable their house was by just doing that one thing. And, you know, it's not a huge thing, but it was a simple thing that, you know, altered the performance of their home. So those are the types of things we look at. Like what when you buy a window, what type of window are you going to get? You know, if you're going to do these home maintenance things, then what are the factors that you need to take into consideration? And that's why we wrote the book. And I think that's a part that I would like to dig into is a list of these things that, you know, are green, but maybe it's not somebody is actually caring about their impact to the environment, but they're thinking about it from a monetary viewpoint. Like, what are the things that may cost you a little more upfront, but they actually pay themselves off in a reasonable amount of time? And what are maybe even some of the things if somebody's building a home that they could do that actually don't cost you anything? It's just a decision you need to make, like which way your house faces the sun and things like that. Well, a lot has to do with where you live. So for instance, I live in Chicago and, you know, I wanted to put solar panels on it. And I looked up the biggest solar supplier in the, in the world, and that was GE, and that he did not have an office rep in Chicago. And if I hadn't gotten the 30% tax rebates from the state of Illinois, there's no way the solar panels make any sense. In fact, if people say, like, I want to do solar in Chicago, I'm like, if you're going to spend the money on that, then I can t- come up with 10 different things that are more green than that. Because the, the payoff is not there. When I put them in, you know, my electric bill was like $15 a month and I was like saving 10%. So I was like, I'm saving, you know, $15 a month, you know, but the panels cost me $20,000. Like, well, how many months is it going to take me to pay all these things off, right? But if we're looking at the, like the house, for instance, I put in bamboo floors. The bamboo floors were exactly the same cost as oak, but the bamboo floors are renewable. You know, they, they grow back very fast, very rapidly. And so bamboo is a renewable wood. Oak is not. Actually, solar orientation is a huge thing. And so we bought sunshades. So I have huge nine-foot tall glass windows by nine-foot wide in my house. But I put up and take down solar shades in the summer to remove the heat gain. But during the winter, we get all that nice southern exposure, you know, that warms the house. Those sunshades cost me, you know, $175 a sunshade. But that one little thing cuts down the heat gain so much in the summer. I actually put them on the north side of my house because the solar orientation, the sun comes so far north that it actually is more powerful in, you know, late in the afternoon on the north. So I, I have sunshades across the whole front of my you know, side in front of my house. That's a simple, relatively cost-effective thing that just cuts down you know, your energy load of cooling the house. Dual flush toilets. That's another thing that is, doesn't really cost that much more than a regular toilet. Granted, they have gotten the water consumption down from like five gallons to one and a half. But if you can do like half a gallon because it's got uh, urine in it versus a full waste, that's another, you know, quick energy efficient thing. And then the other thing is just the quality of life in the home. So if you remove all the chemicals, if you're replacing the cabinets, you're doing these things and you make sure that they're not made with formaldehyde, your air quality is going to be better in your house. You know, these are you know, a static cleaner air, you know, on your, on your HVA system. These are little things that can do that, you know, give you a better air quality. And so your performance of your health is better and, you know, just makes it, you know, more enjoyable to live in your house. Awesome tips. Love it, Scott. I'm actually curious if you've seen, cause you're kind of more in this space than I am, but any trends, and I've definitely noticed, you know, more people are moving into tiny homes, more people are putting solar on the roofs. What are some of these green trends that you think are really going to be impactful on the way that houses are built in the future or that people can kind of add on to their homes now or in the coming years? Well, I love all those things because smaller homes means more need for self-storage, right? <laughs> <laughs> love it. So, so we, we, love, we love tiny homes. 
ultimately, I think the trend for homes has changed dramatically. I think there's been a, a huge shift. You know, people would always say, why do you tear down homes? And I said, well, because a lot of times the things we torn down weren't intended to be homes. Like one home that we torn down was actually a barn that someone converted into a house. You know, I'm like, have you seen what the inside of that barn looks like? It's not a house. But the way in which people used homes in the last 10 years has dramatically changed compared to the last 50 years. Even in the last year and a half, I think people use space differently. You know, now it's not only I need an office space, I need a home gym, I need a uh, an educational space. So I think people are becoming more efficient with their spaces and there's they need to have more flexibility. So being able to put things away and then pull them out, storage, you know, in terms of within the house so that it's not uh, constantly cluttered. That's the thing that we hear constantly is we're on top of one another and, and you know, there's stuff everywhere. So how do we how do we manage people's stuff? That is the biggest challenge within smaller spaces. And I, there's actually a projected boom within self-storage because people are clearing out the stuff that they store in their house in order to make more space for how they live in their house and how they do life. And I think that model has become more centralized around the home than we have in the past. So I think that's the biggest trend that you'll see within homes is a greater change in use within the home. So I want to ask kind of a little bit of a random question that may not be very helpful to listeners, but hey, we got you on here and I just want to ask. So I had a storage unit in Colorado Springs. It was a pretty crappy storage unit, but right next to me, I was I'm 95% sure there was someone living in there. They were at least there. They had a couch set up. They had food. They were in there a lot of time if they weren't full on living there. Have you actually like ran into that very much? Like, uh, is there laws against that? Like, what's to keep someone from living in a storage unit? Because while it may give you a return, it's also probably way cheaper than any apartment you could rent. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a healthy thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, our our ones in our buildings, which are Class A, make it really nice because they're heated and you know cooled, and you know if you move around enough, they get their lighting for free, all those sorts of things. Yeah, it's a problem, you know, that, and that's the biggest thing that people have to um, overcome really is the fact that if someone does try to live in there. And so that's, that's just part of your management, you know, keeping an eye on things, having cameras, your staff that they go around and make sure that there's not signs of it. Like if there's an extension cord running across like, the ground and into the unit, you know, that's a pretty good sign that someone's living in there. And so those are all the different ways in which we make sure that, you know, that's not happening. So it's not safe. It's not good because, um, you know, obviously it's not designed to, to have, you know, just egress. It's not designed to have someone get in and out of it safely, right? If you're you're closing the door and making sure you're safe, you're locking it. Well, then that's harder to get out and there's no emergency escape from it, right? There's no plumbing. There's no general things that people need. People need water. They need electricity. They need these things. And, um, you know, obviously we don't provide them for that very reason. A word you just mentioned there I just want to touch on real quick is management. So in terms of a self-storage unit versus a, you know, multi-condo apartment, you name it, what is kind of the hours per month that that thing needs to be managed? Like how often are people actually getting in and out of their storage unit? Well, our traffic count is like three or four people per day. You know, it's it's incredibly low compared to multifamily. You know, when we were doing multifamily, our expense ratio was between 50 and 55%. In self-storage, we're modeling at 35, but in the one model, we're, we're getting it down to sub-teens in terms of our expense ratio. So that's one of the things that we really like is just how much more economically efficient they are. And so they don't take a whole lot of management once they get in there. It's more of customer service being on the phone, making sure that come payment time, people are on top of it. They're, if they have automatic debit on their credit card or on their bank account, it's even better. 
and uh, you know, just maintaining, making sure it's clean. And it's on the lease up that you have um, the most sales that are going on. And that's where you have the most management is occurring is during the lease up period of time. And along with that management, I know, you know, you hear some horror stories, depending on which state it's in, people who are into, you know, normal consumer real estate, where a residential real estate, where, you know, they come into an issue, they need to evict someone. With the storage units, are there any kind of catch-ups or is it pretty simple where you don't pay your bill and you you can just sell their stuff and you don't really have to worry about going through litigation? Yeah, there is no litigation. So um, typically what it is, I mean, we don't have any of the um, tenant protection laws here in the city of Chicago. They're just horrendously in favor of the tenant. It's, it's horrible. You get penalized for being a, a landowner in the city of Chicago, literally. And so we don't face any of that. So, you, you know, you, you give them notice and then what happens if they don't pay you, you do an overlock. And, you know, when they come to get their stuff and they can't get it because you've locked their lock, that's a cause for payment. And if they don't pay, then typically stuff is thrown away or there's an auction. But, um, you know, depending on what's in there. Awesome. Well, Scott, I think that wraps up all of the touch points I had. And we're definitely nearing the end of the interview here. But before we let you go, I want to make sure that all of our listeners have a chance to connect with you, see what you're doing, read your book. Where are some of the best places where they can find you and see your resources? Uh, the best way to get hold of us is info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G for managementgroup.com. And if you know they uh, reference the show, we'll be more than happy to spend some time talking with them about a building if they think is good for self-storage. It's a small world. We're not going to steal a, a site. You know, If they want us to sign a non-disclosure, non-circumvent, we'd be more than happy to do that for comfort level. But we'll, we'll review the site for them, give them the reasons why. We'll run the demographics for them, making sure that it's a good or not good site to go after. Just help them get on the right track. So that, that's something we'd like to offer your, your listeners. I want to second that, uh, what Cody said. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been a, it's been a really cool, interesting episode because, as we mentioned in the buildup, we've had a lot of real estate people on, a lot of residential, even some commercial, but not really this angle with the storage units and with the green building. So thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.